becoming a habit, but we're in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 6. Most of this morning, we've been looking back upon Christmas because, well, Christmas was yesterday. And so what happens afterward? Well, part of that is here in Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's commonplace today to hear people, of, people speaking of truth as if it was a personal possession. They speak of my truth and your truth. And this, of course, is part and parcel of the postmodernism which characterizes our age. It operates on the assumption that truth is changeable and dependent upon one's own feelings and desires. The novelist Flannery O'Connor understood the absurdity of this and was certainly correct when she wrote, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Truth is truth, whether we like it or not. The fact that I personally may object to a truth doesn't matter. Those things that are objectively true remain objectively true. I may not even know about them. It doesn't impact whether something is true or not. I can deny them. I can rail against them. But they remain true. Above the main entrance to the University of Queensland in Australia... These words are engraved in stone. Great is truth and mighty above all things. Which strikes me as exactly the sort of exalted saying that you should find at the entrance to a university. And it's also the sort of old-fashioned idea that no one would put above the door of a university today. It would not surprise me to hear at some point in the future that it has been removed it is so contrary to the spirit of the age. But it does remind us of the words of Jesus in J John chapter 8, verse 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It is truth that sets us free, not our opinions, not our judgments upon the truth. Pontius Pilate didn't know it, but he was a very first century modernist. Uh, he revealed this when he asked Jesus a question that resonates even today. What is truth? Little did he know that 
Truth was standing there in front of him. Jesus himself had earlier declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And by those words, our Lord indicated that truth is more than a series of propositions to be studied and memorized. Truth is also exceedingly personal. If you were with us Friday night at our Christmas Eve service, you'll remember that we discussed Paul's words in Titus chapter 2, where he said that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. And we spoke about the fact that this grace that Paul was speaking about is grace personified. Paul is, of course, talking about the appearance of Jesus, which brought salvation to all men. But he speaks of Jesus as grace. Jesus is there in that context, the personification of grace. But There in John chapter 14, Jesus refers to himself as the personification of truth. And if you want to know the ultimate truth, then, you need to know Jesus Christ. To know Jesus Christ is to know the truth. If you miss him, then you miss the ultimate truth of the universe. Pilate's question, of course, has continued to be asked down the ages. Here's Hemingway's take on the question of truth. He said, there's no one thing that is true. They're all true. That's the statement of a man who has decided that rationality can be disposed with. As for me, I'll stand with Flannery O'Connor. But more than that, I'm going to stand with Jesus. He is truth. Anne Graham Lotz, as you may know, is the daughter of Billy Graham. She was being interviewed on a news program when the interviewer hit her with a question about those who had died on September 11th. Since you believe that you have to accept Christ to go to heaven, she was asked, doesn't that mean that Jews and Muslims who died that day will go to hell? Now, most people who do interviews like this soon learn how to avoid answering questions like that. She didn't run away from it. She quoted John 14, 6, and declared that Jesus is the only way of salvation. She said very clearly and plainly that one must believe in Jesus in order to go to heaven. The interviewer tried again, saying, so you believe you have to accept Christ to go to heaven? To which she simply replied, much as her father would have, that's what the Bible says. And that's correct. That's what the Bible says. And that brings us to our text this morning. In Matthew chapter 2, we find this mysterious story of a visit of the Magi to King Herod in Jerusalem. On one level, this is a very familiar story. We know all about the three wise men because we grew up singing, We Three Kings. 
And we know they found Jesus in a stable because that's the way it is in every Christmas pageant and every nativity scene we've ever seen. Shepherds on the left, baby Jesus in the middle, and three guys carrying boxes whom we are supposed to understand contain gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're on the other side. And they're usually wearing funny-looking hats, which help us to know that these are the wise men and not the shepherds. Now, most of what I just described there is simply tradition. It's not what we find in Scripture. It doesn't say there were only three of them. It doesn't say that they were kings. Also, Matthew chapter 2 makes it clear that the Magi found Jesus in a house in Bethlehem, meaning they had arrived sometime after his birth. We're not told how long after his birth, but it certainly seems that it wasn't on that night, for which I'm guessing Mary was grateful. <laughs> having just given birth and then having the shepherds stop by, uh, she was probably through with visitors for the day. So we really don't know. All Matthew tells us is that this occurred after Jesus was born. In any case, the main purpose of this passage is not to tantalize us with details. Matthew 2 is about truth. It brings us face to face with how different people respond when confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ. Some are positive, some are negative, some are simply uninterested. The story of the visit of the Magi is found only here in Matthew's Gospel. All that we know about these men, we find here. They show up in verse 1 and they disappear in verse 12, leaving behind a host of unanswered questions. Who were they and where did they come from? How many were there? What is this star they saw, and how did it lead them to Bethlehem? How long after the birth of Jesus did they arrive in Jerusalem? How did they know that the baby was going to be the king of the Jews? We'll talk a little bit about this, but what we need to understand is that if those things were important, they'd be in the text. Came across a video just this morning, actually. There was a discussion going on about the date of Jesus' birth. And somebody referred to a video. And I clicked on the video. It was a short one. And it was a guy who I recognized as being a cultist, essentially, he was an adherent of what's called British Israelism, which means he thinks that the lost so-called tribes of Israel ended up in England. And the British and all of those who flow from them are really the true descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. So he's got some issues. One of the first things he said in this video was, knowing the date of Jesus' birth is extremely important. And I'm here to tell you, it's not. 
December 25th has as much chance of being the date of Jesus' birth as any other day on the calendar. Right? So you've got a 1 in 352 right, chance. Well, likewise, some of these questions. They're unanswered because Scripture doesn't answer them. There are some general things that we can know about the Magi and about what was going on. But over the centuries, legends have grown up about this. And if the Lord wanted, to know what, wanted us to know specific things about these men and how they got there, he would have told us. That's not what he wants us to focus on. And so over the centuries, all kinds of things have been attributed to this account. These wise men have been given names, as you may know. Casper, Melchior, Belshazzar. I don't know where these names come from. They're not here. They were venerated as saints, and tra a tradition arose called the Adoration of the Magi. In fact, if you go to the cathedral in Cologne, Germany, you will find relics alleged to be the remains of the wise men. Well, it all begins here in Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now notice that the wise men are called Magi from the east. That's really all we're told about them. The term Magi is a Persian word that referred to a special class of priests in the Persian Empire. We know from other sources that the Magi existed for hundreds of years before the time of Christ. They had their own religion. They had their own priesthood. They had their own writings. And going back to the book of Daniel, we find them being spoken of as having existed in Daniel's day. And it even seems that Daniel was appointed as head over the Magi in the time of King Darius, the Persian emperor. So who were these Magi? They were the professors and the philosophers of their day. They were highly educated scholars who trained in medicine and history and religion and astronomy slash astrology. Back in the ancient days, there was not a distinction between those things. In our day, astrology has gotten a deservedly bad rap. But the Magi's study of the skies was a kind of mixture of astrology and astronomy. They studied the stars and they tracked their course. That was the astronomy they also believed that the stars could foretell the future. That was the astrology. The important thing for us to know is that they were highly influential in Persia. They were, in fact, advisors to the king. Knowing all this, it is perfectly legitimate to refer to them as wise men, though not kings. 
Now, why have they traveled so far from home? It's a thousand miles from Persia to Israel. Why would they have made such a treacherous journey? The answer that we're given is they have come to see the baby born king of the Jews. This is fascinating. They knew a baby had been born, but they didn't know where. They knew that he was a king, but they didn't know his name. So they come to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, assuming they would find people there who could answer their questions and direct them to the child. But a surprise awaits them. It's here that Daniel gives us a great deal of help. We know that the Jews and Persians had intermingled for the last 500 years. It seems that the Magi considered Daniel who was a good Jew, who had been taken away into exile by the Babylonians and then, you know, the Persians. They considered Daniel to be one of them. Since the time of Daniel, the Persians had known of the Jewish expectation of a Messiah. It's possible that they even knew from the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel 9, the approximate time of this king's coming. What they did not know was the exact time. When they saw the star, however, they recognized that the time had come. Now, lest that seem like mere speculation, let me say a little bit more about it. Everything we know about the Jews and the Magi and the history of the ancient Near East makes this story very, very likely. We know that the Jews were looking for a Messiah. We know that the Magi looked to the stars for guidance. We knew that the Jews and the Magi had intermingled at least since the exile when Daniel was among them. We know that they, the, the Magi were students of the stars, so they would notice any new and unusual sign in the sky, and therefore it should not surprise us that the Magi would travel to Jerusalem to greet this new Jewish king. The story in Matthew 2 perfectly fits with everything we know about that. Now, once they get there, of course, and they don't know specifically where this king is, their assumption is, if we figured this out, the Jews must know a lot more about it than we do. So let's go and find somebody who should know. And where do they go? To Herod. Not a great move. They don't really know Herod so well, apparently. We find that Herod heard this. He was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, Herod is troubled. Herod is disturbed. That word disturbed means to shake violently. It'll help to understand what's happening here if you understand that at this point in Herod's life, this is Herod the Great we're speaking about, he is very old, he is very sick, and he is nearly dead. 
as a result, as a result, there is great instability in regard to his throne. He has been in power for over 40 years. He has proven to be a clever and cruel man. Like all despots, he has held tightly to the reins of power and brutally removed anyone he thought was a threat to him. Over the years, he killed many people who he considered a threat to his throne, including his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and his wife. This is a brutal evil man. It seems that it was the murder of his wife that began to drive him mad. He killed her because he thought she was a threat to his power, but he never really got over her or the act which he had committed. He was 44 years old when he killed her, and even though he lived to be 70, her murder was kind of the beginning of the end. There are, according to the historical records, a noticeable decline into what many considered to be insanity after that. So you see, above everything else, Herod the Great was a killer. That was his nature. He killed out of spite, and he killed to stay in power. Human life meant nothing to him. The historian Josephus calls him barbaric. Another writer dubbed him the malevolent malevolent maniac. Perhaps his basic character can be seen in an incident in the year 7 B.C. Herod's an old man already. He has been in power 41 years. He knows he doesn't have much longer to live. Word comes that his sons are plotting to overthrow him. And his first reaction is to put them to death by strangulation. No wonder Caesar Augustus said it's safer to be Herod's sow than Herod's son. This was known about even in Rome that Herod himself was a lunatic. He had been given the title King of the Jews by the Roman Senate, but in reality he wasn't even a Jew. By birth he was Idumean. He was a descendant of the Edomites, descendants of Esau. The Jews hated him. They considered him to be a puppet of Rome, which he clearly was. The notion of a baby born king of the Jews, then, is a direct threat to Herod, which is why he is troubled and disturbed. In Herod's mind, such as it was, he had no choice. Kill or be killed. And now, coming to the very end of his life, he is ready to kill anyone who threatens him, as he always has been, of course. But at this point, he's even ready to kill a tiny, helpless baby if he feels that baby is a threat to him. And so Herod here stands for us as a symbol for the kind of world into which Jesus came. He represented the world's welcoming committee for the Son of God. Jesus is born and the rulers try to kill him. Scripture says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Can that be seen any more clearly than in Herod? 
Herod stands for the bloodthirsty, cruel, vindictive side of this world system. A world where human life is cheap, a world where killing is accepted and even expected. Herod died, but his spirit lives on. To this day, there are those who are offended by Jesus, even by the mere mention of his name. Herod would feel right at home with many in our own day. But before Herod can get rid of the baby, he's got to put on a pleasant face. He has to seem interested in helping these strangers find the child. And so he turns to the scribes and the priests for advice. He has only one question. Where is this child to be born? The scribes don't have to look it up. Verse 4, gathering all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born, and they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. They didn't say, listen, give us a couple of days. We've got to go check the commentaries. We've got to go and do some work in the original languages. We've got to try to figure this out. It's going to take us a while. They knew immediately. It's in Bethlehem of Judea. 700 years earlier, the prophet Micah had predicted the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem. This was common knowledge in Israel. Little children learned this before they were six years old. And if you add what the scribes knew to what the Magi figured out, you surely conclude that the signs of Jesus coming were clear enough for people to figure out. It's sometimes said that God always speaks loud enough for a willing ear to hear. And I think that's the crucial point. Is someone willing to hear? The Magi knew and did something. The scribes knew and did nothing. This is all the more shocking when you consider the scribes were professional students of the Torah. What we refer to as the Old Testament. From youth, these men had spent their days reading and studying and memorizing and debating the scripture. Some of them knew the first five books of the Bible by heart. Others had memorized the Psalms. Others had memorized all the prophets. They knew every prophecy of the Messiah's coming by heart. They even knew what this rabbi had said about this verse and what that rabbi had said about that other verse. These were the finest Bible scholars in the world. They knew what Daniel had said about the general timing. So when Herod asked, where is the Messiah going to be born? They knew the answer immediately. Micah said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. End of story. Now, note this. Verse 5, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. In Bethlehem of Judea. Now, there's another Bethlehem up by Galilee. Not that one. Bethlehem of Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is where Herod had his palace. Jerusalem is where the Magi came. Jerusalem is six miles from Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem of Judea. This Bethlehem was so close that you could walk it from Jerusalem in a couple of hours. Some could walk it in a couple of hours. Others of us might take a little bit longer. People lived in Bethlehem and went to Jerusalem to buy and sell and to go to the temple. It was a commuting suburb of Jerusalem. An easy journey on good roads, six miles. Six miles, and none of the scribes cared enough to go and to check out the rumor that the long-awaited Messiah had been born. Six miles from Jesus. Six miles from salvation. Six miles from eternal life. And they were too busy studying the minutia of the Bible to go and see for themselves. If we took the whole congregation and started walking, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, you'd walk up Route 6, you'd get up onto Route 52, maybe the other side of Carmel. Come thou long-expected Jesus, six miles, born to set thy people free, six miles. O come, all ye faithful, six miles. O come, let us adore him, only six miles. All that knowledge that the scribes had, and it did them no good. The little knowledge that the Magi had caused them to travel a thousand miles. The scribes represent the religiously indifferent. These are the insiders who know all the facts and do nothing about it. They don't care enough to get excited. When Herod asked where the baby was to be born, they knew the answer. They told them where to go and look, but didn't care enough to investigate for themselves. Six miles was too far to go. It was an inconvenience. Because all this was academic to them. Their heart did not long for the coming of the Messiah. They did not desire above anything else to see the fulfillment of God's promises. They said, you can find him in Bethlehem of Judea. Have a nice trip. Let us know how it goes. They should have been singing and dancing because the Messiah had come. Instead, they ignored it. Herod, for all his excuses, at least acted consistently with his basic nature. By contrast, these scribes knew the truth and did nothing. The Bible scholars knew the answer to the question. They knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but their knowledge condemned them all the more because they didn't care. It's possible to know a great deal of truth and to miss the truth.
As I read Matthew 2, one fact strikes me above all others. Everybody involved had the same basic information. They all knew a baby had been born in Bethlehem. They all knew who the baby was. Herod knew and wanted to kill him. The scribes knew and ignored him. The magi knew and they worshipped him. And for all those who feel that they are too busy to join the search for Jesus, C.S. Lewis wrote these words, Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Jesus stands at the end of life's road for each of us. Whether we search for him or not, whether we find him or not, he will find us in the end. In the end, there is no middle ground. To ignore him is the same as to hate him because you end up without him either way. To ignore Jesus altogether means to live as if he doesn't matter at all. But no one can ignore him forever. He will not allow it. Each of us have an appointment with Christ sooner or later. So the question then comes to us this morning, what will you do with Jesus? Will you be like Herod and hate him? There are many who do. Will you be like the scribes and ignore him? Will you be like the Magi and seek him and worship him? See, the ultimate question is not how someone else responds to Jesus, but how you respond to Jesus. We could come to Matthew chapter 2 and we can talk about this as some interesting historical event. And we can get curious about who the Magi were and who the scribes were and why did Herod act like he did. And then we could leave it there. And it will do us no good. But that's not why Matthew provides this for us. Matthew tells us this account because it, he wants to do something in us. He wants us not only to think about what happened 2,000 years ago, but to think what's happening now in our own hearts. Who am I? Herod? Or the scribes? Or the magi? Where do I see myself? How do I think about Jesus? Are you with Herod? Or with the scribes? Or with the magi? Are you hostile to Jesus? Are you too busy with life to care about him? Or do you desire above all, all else to find him and to worship him? Perhaps you'd describe yourself as a religious person. Perhaps you would say that you've believed in Jesus all your life. I speak to many people who would say something like that. But is it the same kind of belief that the scribes possessed? They knew about the Messiah all their lives. Is it something that, like the scribes, is in your mind but has never affected your heart? 
Is your so-called belief in Jesus something that has never led you to a hatred of sin and a personal active trust in Christ? Perhaps in these days leading up to Christmas, and now continuing on as we come away from Christmas, perhaps anger and worry and fear and doubt have robbed you of joy. If so, this is the invitation which the Lord offers to you today. Let go of your doubts, let go of your fears, give up your anger, let loose of your bitterness, let go of the things that chain you and keep you in bondage. If you will do those things, if you'll give up all of that and instead cling to Christ, your life will change. That doesn't mean all your problems will go away. That's not the promise. It does mean that Jesus will free you from the bondage of those things that hold you. It does mean that you no longer have to live a life full of anger and resentment and bitterness. It means that you no longer have to live a life chasing something that's always just out of reach and then finding that the chase itself leaves you empty. Those are the things Jesus will change because he will liberate you from those things that hold you in bondage. If Jesus rules your life, fear and anger and doubt will not. You can only have one ruler. Scripture puts it in terms of God or money. But the contrast could be God and all kinds of other things. What is ruling your life? What's controlling you? If it's not Jesus Christ, then you are in bondage and you need to be set free. So look for Jesus. He has never turned away any heart that has done so. Can you imagine that at the conclusion of this story, as the Magi come, finally find out where the child is, they come to that place, they knock on the door, and they're told to go away. That wouldn't make much of a story. And it would never happen, and it has never happened for anyone who comes to Jesus Christ. If you search him out, you will find him. Because if you search for him, it means that he is searching for you. And he began the search. And you're not only being found, you're being found and you're being drawn. So don't resist. Come to Christ. Seek him and you will find him. May that be your experience this year. May you be able to look back at Christmas time of 2021 and say, that's when I became a wise man. That's when I became a wise woman. That's when I looked for and found the Savior. Father, may it be. May your gospel go forth this day and every day, Father, in order to save. Father, build your kingdom by magnifying the name of Jesus. 
And may we, your people, be so in love with him that we desire others to adore him as well. This is what we ask this day, Father. Bring it to pass. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.